0: the Jewish views on Pretty Patel. Last week, the keynote speaker at the annual Israel Conference, this week resigns over secret meetings with Bibi. Young Hitler, the new book by author Paul Hamm, which looks at the dictator's early years. And Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein tells us why he believes Remembrance Sunday is more important than ever.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The International Development Secretary, Priti Patel, has resigned after it was revealed she held secret meetings with Israeli officials and the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, while on a private holiday in Israel in August. Ms. Patel did not report the meetings to the Foreign Office or government, as she's supposed to do. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, had originally reprieved Miss Patel, but then further meetings came to light, one in New York and the other in the UK, following her return from the vacation, which finally led to her quitting the Cabinet. The veteran Labour MP Harriet Harman has ignored a call from a leading Jewish charity for her to apologise after retelling an anti-Semitic joke live on Andrew Neil's BBC show. Miss Harmon was taking part in a discussion about bad taste jokes, but Mr. Neal was outraged and when she tried to defend herself he told her to be quiet Simon Johnson of the Jewish Leadership Council said irrespective of the point she was trying to make, Harriet Harmon must apologize and do so quickly. The group behind an anti-Israel march last week in London's Grosvenor Square, which was timed to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the Balfour declaration, told supporters they shouldn't fly the flag of the Lebanon-based militia Hezbollah. Metropolitan police officers apparently also warned the organisers that anyone flying the flags could be arrested and the Israeli Prime Minister was in the UK celebrating the Balfour centenary. He and his wife Sarah had a private meeting with various Jewish community leaders who heard Benjamin Netanyahu's personal recollection of his family's links to British Jewry. The Jewish Leadership Council Chairman Jonathan Goldstein said two of the main points Mr Netanyahu raised were about the Islamist threat in Europe, which Israel had faced for many years, and concern that the regional influence of Iran was spreading. And finally, Jewish drivers have been deciding whether £1,000 is too much to pay for a private number plate, which, if looked at carefully, reads Shalom. That's the minimum price an online auction site will take. So if you want the unique registration plate, get bidding by the 20th of this month. And that's the news. Over to The Sport with Andrew.
2: Thank you, Viv. Israeli judo fighter Uri Sassoon is waiting to find out if he will be allowed to take part in the Open Weight World Championships in Morocco, as organisers have yet to provide a letter confirming his participation. Coming less than two weeks after he wasn't allowed to represent Israel in the United Arab Emirates, the Olympic bronze-winning medalist is unable to board a flight to Marrakesh as he needs the confirmation letter to obtain his travel visa. An Israeli footballer collapsed and went into cardiac arrest after being hit in the chest by a ball. Hapa el-Besheva captain Elianiv Bada was saved by the Team Massur and an ambulance crew who were fortunately in the area and administered electric shocks to restart his heart. And finally, Pope Francis has been invited to launch the Giro d'Italia cycling event in Israel. The world-famous Italian race, which gets underway in May, will see 175 cyclists from around the world gather in Jerusalem before riding to the Red Sea. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk
0: Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is the dynamic news duo that are editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. We'll start off with the front page, as we tend to do on this programme. And the front page reads, Priti Patel resigns over secret Israel meetings.
3: It's been an incredible whirlwind week for Priti Patel. Last week, of course, we were talking about whether or not she might become the new Defence Secretary following the resignation of Michael Fallon. This week, she's out of Cabinet completely following her resignation over a series of meetings that emerged with various Israeli officials, including Benjamin Netanyahu. I think it really was a drip, drip effect that caused us to be in this position She apologised on Monday for some of those meetings that had been disclosed, then further meetings emerged, and and in the end, her removal or or her resignation, as it was termed officially, from Cabinet was almost inevitable, really. Inevitable, but at the same time, a bit of a loss to the community, wouldn't we say, Rich?
4: Yes. I mean, well, a loss to the government, a loss to Theresa May. Uh, she was at the forefront of Brexit negotiations, a real prime mover in that. As far as Priti Patel's concerned, her career, I don't think it's a, a necessarily a bad thing. She's probably well out of it for the next couple of years anyway, until 2019, and the poison chalice of Brexit finally is out of the way. And then they uh, finally get rid of Theresa May ahead of the next election. That would probably be a very good time for Priti Patel to make her, her big re-emergence into the forefront of British politics. So, I imagine she'll be quite happy until then, just kind of sitting in the, in the background and, and watching all the squabbling take shape. I mean, these things happened months ago. Who ratted on her is a, is a question. Who at the Foreign Office didn't like her? Why was she so sloppy and naive at the time to think that th- this thing would be acceptable? And she's had a 20-year you know, history in, in lobbying, and, and she knows these things inside and out. So why due process wasn't adhered to, I don't know. And then, of course, there's the, the whole kind of subtext here as as i tweeted had this been a minister in kazakhstan being shown around by a kazakh peer would you have the same big ferrari that you've got with the fact that it was an mp being shown around israel so of course there's that whole other agenda that we're we're concerned with in this week's paper a huge story and the implications and ramifications for the government are, are yet to be fully known
0: And also, Justin, as you rightly identify, what a difference a week makes. She was keynote speaker at the Israel conference last week. And now suddenly we're talking about her resignation. It seems extraordinary.
3: It is incredible for the Jewish News, as you said, to have hosted her in Parliament just last week. Also hosted various other figures that have been talked about in in this story. Uh, Lord Stuart Pollock as well was among our guests last week. It is it's incredible. That they say a week is a long time in politics, and, and never before has that been uh, quite so relevant as this week. I would say that, to her credit, that on two occasions now, and particularly in her resignation statement, Pretty Patel has acknowledged that her actions weren't up to the standards expected of a cabinet minister. She has accepted responsibility for some of the events that happened. Uh, the question of who knew what, obviously, was something that will rumble on, I'm sure into next week's paper, I I suspect. And then there's this issue of infighting between the government because it effectively appears to be the case or certainly widespread speculation that's the case that she got caught up in infighting within the government between the Foreign Office, DFID, and, and obviously Downing Street also implicated in this row.
4: Certainly, I think a lot of people are using this as political capital every day of the year, for, for years and years, there's horse trading that goes on behind the scenes, unofficial liaisons that take place. So, yeah, th- this is a, a political decision as much as anything for Patel's adversaries to benefit from. But quite how high up the food chain this, this goes and who knew what when as we speak here now uh, remains to be seen.
0: Does indeed. Well, hopefully, before long, we will know. Now, as the week continued last week, so did the Balfour 100 celebrations, or at least the events, if that's the better word to use, continue. So, what else happened since last episode of the Jewish Views?
3: Yeah, we had all the main commemorations and celebrations. In the last week, we had the dinner at Lancaster House that was hosted by Lord Rothschild, attended by both Prime Ministers of the UK and of Israel, by Tony Blair, by former Secretary of State John Kerry, among many other big names. That was a massive occasion, a very glamorous occasion, an occasion which many people wanted an invitation to and didn't get, I think Richard and I included, uh, but that's that's a shame. But there were many... I wonder why I didn't see you there. <laughs> ah. Did you see what sorry, I did there?
0: there?
4: You, well, you were a waiter there, were you? <laughs> (laughs)
0: Wow, okay, back to the story.
4: (laughs) No, it was only the very high brass. You had to be a lord or a prime minister or a president to be there. That's why uh, my my, my Sadly, that hasn't come to
0: fruition yet. It's only in my mind. But anyway, yes, so sorry.
3: I didn't mean to interrupt that. Sorry, Justin. It would have been a a fantastic occasion to be at. It was a fantastic occasion to be at by by accounts of those that were there. Theresa May spoke about the fight against anti-Semitism. It was a speech that Benjamin Netanyahu expressed great appreciation for and As glamorous an occasion as you could expect. I think also since the last show, we had the big celebration, the biggest celebration of them all, in fact, at the Royal Albert Hall. A group of Christian supporters of Israel organized that and and had the vision and the confidence to fill the Royal Albert Hall, which they very nearly did. More than 3,000 people in attendance on Tuesday night. A fantastic occasion, a, a spectacular show involving Israeli singers, the Israeli Dance Institute, as well as various Christian choirs. It was a very, very powerful occasion and ended with the Hatikvah sounding through the Rollaba Hall. How amazing. Goodness me. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? That sounds
0: absolutely fantastic.
4: I think it would be remiss of me without noting that Turkey also marked the Balfour Declaration by a a, a militant, some might call them terror group, hacking the Jewish News website last Thursday when we were doing our Balfour event. An organisation called Akinclair, which has been hacking sites all across the, uh, the world, particularly in Holland, had the Jewish News website down for about five hours. We are partnered by Times of Israel. Their site was was also down. It's being investigated by the International Cybercrime Organization at the moment. So I take it as a something of a compliment that, you know, we've been um, highlighted as a, a Jewish news source that these ne'er-do-wells want to target. So uh, it wasn't down for long and uh, normal service has been resumed. Ah, well,
0: that would explain it. So if anyone in that case was wondering what happened to the Jewish news website last week, including myself at one stage, I actually texted in a panic saying, do you guys know this has happened? To which I just got a simple response. Yes. So there you go. Thank you for clarifying that. Just finally, let's have a quick look at another story that's in the paper this week. We heard it just now in the news with Viv. Harriet Harman has been quoting inappropriate what some apparently are calling humour.
5: Yeah, this
4: was an awkward moment on my favourite TV programme this week with the magnificent Andrew Neil and the equally wonderful Michael Portillo. I do recommend you watch it. It's a wonderful overview of the news. So Harriet Harman, former Labour leader. She She was
0: was the standing leader. Before Corbyn, yeah, just, so she was interim.
4: They were talking about bad jokes, bad taste humor. It, it doesn't bear repetition here, but she told a particularly vile Holocaust joke, using it as an example of bad humor. But what got Andrew Neil's back up was that she preempted it by saying this is the sort of thing that Andrew Neil might find funny. So he quickly cut her down and told her to be quiet. So the debate now really is Holocaust humor acceptable in any way? Now, interestingly, Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm also told. holocaust joke when he was uh, hosting saturday night live last week slightly more bad taste i'd say and again you've got to wonder is that something that he's entitled to do as a jewish man and a jewish entertainer difficult question i think we've maybe spoken about this on the show before about you know the likes of the producers and Alo Alo, even and at what point nazism and uh, and the horrors of the second world war can be seen as as a form of amusement it's a difficult subject
0: but at the same time, Justin, just that mere term Holocaust humour sounds like such, it's the worst possible oxymoron. There is nothing funny about it.
3: Yeah, she was, without without trying to provide any excuse for her, she was trying to make a point, obviously, a very misplaced point, a very bad way of making it, and obviously to bring in Andrew Neil as well at the same time caused a double offence. But the the weird thing about this, I have to say, is that despite our extensive efforts to get hold of her there's been no apology i don't think andrew neil requested an apology but certainly the community leadership through the jlc request an apology there's been nothing she hasn't even defended her position apart from i think putting out a tweet which was kind of very cryptic but yeah no no, no acknowledgement no no apology from someone who's a very senior figure who's a very respected figure I found that quite strange i have to say
0: Well, if Harriet Harman is indeed listening to this programme and does wish to come on The Jewish Views to express her apologies, we'd welcome her at any time. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've been hearing, what a difference a week makes. Last week, MP Priti Patel was the keynote speaker at the Jewish News and BICOM's annual Israel Conference. This week, she's handed in her resignation because of revelations that she held a series of secret talks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli officials. But just what was so wrong about it... And would this fuss have been made with any other country? Well, to look at these points and to unpick the story further, I'm joined now by Jewish news journalist extraordinaire Jenny Fraser. So, Jenny, can we just start off with a little bit of background into this whole saga?
5: This all stems from a summer holiday that Priti Patel took with her family in August this year and some kind of a holiday It must have been because during the 10 days that she spent in Israel, she managed to see 12 different Israeli politicians and diplomatic representatives. She saw further two when she came back to London, sorry, one in London and one in the United States. So 14 different meetings in all. One of the meetings was with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu.
0: So it sounds more like a busman's holiday rather than an actual family holiday. However, I suppose that the question has to be asked. We don't necessarily know why Ms Patel kept it secret, if indeed she did, because obviously there are certain publications that are actually suggesting that Number 10 did know about it, although we need to stress that they strenuously deny that. I suppose that the question now is, why is it a big deal
5: when a government minister does keep it a secret? Well, I'm not sure that she did keep it a secret. She didn't seem to mind when a photograph was taken of her having coffee with the centrist politician, Yair Lapid. And she didn't mind having a photograph taken of her and the Israeli security minister, Gilad Erdan, on the terrace of the House of Commons. So that's not exactly being furtive about such meetings. She maintains that there are people such as the British ambassador in Israel, who knew perfectly well that she was having such meetings. And perhaps she didn't go so far as directly to inform Boris Johnson herself. But she certainly didn't go to any great lengths to keep them secret.
0: And just to clarify, her resignation came after, although there was a revelation about these series of secret meetings on that family holiday in Israel, it was the further two secret that you mentioned afterwards, one here, one in the US, or they ultimately came up, I should say, after it was revealed that the initial 12 took place that has ultimately led to the resignation. Is that right? Just to clarify.
5: Not really. I mean, I I suppose they were the question for the Prime Minister of that really puts the tin lid on it, because she had already been hauled over the coals for the discovery, in inverted commas, of the original 12 meetings. And that's why she was able to go off to Uganda, still in her position as minister in the Department of Overseas Development. However... The 12 meetings plus the two meetings, all of those meetings put together break the ministerial code in that such meetings took place without government officials being present, without sufficient information going back to the Foreign Office and or Downing Street, the fact that Lord Pollock is said to have sat in on most of those meetings, the fact that Ms. Patel had a meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister. And when he came to Britain for the Balfour Declaration celebrations, Mrs. May ostensibly did not know that he'd had this meeting with Pretty Patel. Um, yeah, well
0: wasn't it during a meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu that he actually mentioned it in turn and this is almost how it came to light. Is that something right? of the
5: sort. I think that very much a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. But the fact is that all those meetings put together breach the ministerial code. And it may be argued that the ministerial code was not tight enough or not rigidly enough applied, but she broke it. And breaking it is a disciplinary offence. That's why she had to resign. The other thing that I, I really ought to say about what was the most damaging thing that she is said to have done, besides breaking the ministerial code, is that while she was in Israel on this family holiday, she apparently took the opportunity to go up to the Golan and to see the field hospital that Israel has set up to process its humanitarian work under the auspices of Operation Good Neighbour on the border with Syria. Now, the fact is that Britain doesn't recognise Israel's annexation of the Golan. And therefore, she was a minister going into territory which is not accepted by the British government. And that's a major transgression. And certainly that was one of the things that made Mrs May livid
0: see, the problem is, and I mentioned this to Richard just now in the paper review, that Priti Patel always, and this was almost demonstrated last week at the annual Israel conference, is at surface value a really good friend to Israel. How much do you think the community is going to be reeling from the loss of her in her cabinet position?
5: Well, there's no doubt it's very damaging to anybody who wants to speak up for Israel within the framework of the House of Commons, because Anybody who now buys into conspiracy theories will say all kinds of things about the reasons behind why people are supportive of Israel. I think that Conservative Friends of Israel has been struck a considerable body blow. But I'm not necessarily sure that just the departure of one minister is going to make that much difference to the support.
0: With all of this in mind, I suppose that leads on nicely to the next question, because a lot of people I've spoken to about this have all said the same thing. Oh, it wouldn't happen if it was any other country. They wouldn't have made the same fuss. Do you believe that to be the case?
5: No, no, no. I think that this was, to some extent, although (laughs) we might have liked the direction it was taking, it was a minister going rogue. She was effectively trying to create or to carve out her own angle on foreign policy, on British foreign policy. And I'm not surprised that those briefing against her within the Foreign Office took very much umbrage because she was effectively attempting to turn around the good ship British government policy and turn it in an entirely different direction, one that was much more supportive of Israel than has been the case previously. And she wasn't able to do it. What do you think
0: next because let's be honest the the government as it stands seems to be tarnished with one scandal after another or certainly in the press anyway do you think that there is a chance that we can sort of move on from this and that ultimately i suppose the question's got to be is do you think that british and israeli relations are going to be damaged as a result of this or will this just blow over what do you, I know no one can predict the future, but what do you think?
5: It's very difficult to say. What has certainly happened within the last several weeks is that Mrs May's government is showing every indication of being like the final days of John Major's government. In other words, absolute catastrophe in whatever direction you look. If it's not a sex scandal, it's a political scandal. And, you know, the next week... Mrs. May must be wondering what other horrors lie on the horizon. So, for British Jewish community, in terms of how it wants its relationship with Israel to proceed within government circles, we must be very anxious, I would have thought, that all of this trouble is going to bring down the the May government and then it's a question of don't let go the hand of nurse for fear of finding something worse because very few people as i can tell within the community want a corbin government which is the natural alternative and that way nothing good is going to come out of of the relationship between britain and israel going to interrupt myself there because i will say that this week while we are talking The shadow foreign secretary, Emily Thornberry, is in Israel. She's with a Labour Friends of Israel trip. She's doing all the things that Priti Patel might have done had she gone on an official trip. And Emily Thornberry is a very canny politician and is making all the right noises. She came to the Jewish News BICOM conference last week. She gave a very measured speech. So let us suggest to ourselves that a Corbyn-led government is not just Jeremy Corbyn.
0: Yeah, well, I think whatever happens in the world of British politics at the moment, it's going to be truly fascinating as the weeks unfold. But for now, journalist Jenny Fraser, thank you very much indeed for talking to us and also really helping clear up, I suppose, the confusion surrounding the resignation of Priti Patel. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish Schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by Simon Morris, the chief executive of Jewish Care, and David Siegel, the founder of West End Travel. They will be discussing about Remembrance Sunday and asking the question, what relevance does it have to us as Jews? Plus, community editor Diana Thoman will be finding out about that very subject when she speaks to Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein, who has been looking into the importance of Remembrance Sunday. But first, when one hears the name Adolf Hitler, one would be forgiven for automatically thinking of the horrors of the Holocaust and of World War II. But of course, the question does have to be asked, where did his streak that caused him to cause such devastation come from? Well, a new book by author and historian Paul Hamm explores just that. It's called Young Hitler and looks at the dictator's early years to try and see if there is a picture that can be painted to determine why he did what he did. Our arts editor Kate Fulton has been handling this rather delicate subject by speaking to Paul himself. And Kate started by asking Paul to tell us what new things he wanted to discover in this book.
6: Well, I was most interested in trying to establish what was it about his youth and particularly his experiences of World War One that may have contributed to the creation of this murderous, genocidal dictator that m- most of us know from his leadership from 1933. But what went before that is extraordinary insofar as the impact of World War One on his on his mind, on his personality, and his bid for power. I mean, it's it's that experience really, which was a causative effect, ca- had a causative influence on his rise to power and his character.
7: So his character, as any every bit as much as the political circumstance and the social mm-hmm. circumstance of the day led to him becoming um, the level of power that he was.
6: I certainly believe that after World War One, with the humiliation, of Germany, the utter economic destruction of Germany. It was politically opportune for a extremist, a right-wing extremist to seize the chance to scapegoat innocent minorities, the Jewish people, the communists, and socially marginalized people. Uh, that was a political opportunity for Hitler, and he was exceptionally at- attuned to that to that opportunity. He had discovered in himself the, the power of his voice, his ability to to persuade a room to rally behind his extreme views. And in keeping with that was his own personal sense of vengeance against those he blamed for the destruction of, the German, of his beloved German army. And, and rather accept the fact that they were defeated on the battlefield, he believed they were stabbed in the back by an alliance of Jews and communists. And he never forgave them and was going to devote the rest of his life to persecuting and destroying them.
7: Him as a, as a person, what was his character like that led him to have all these, all these people following him? I mean, it's, it sounds extraordinary. He, he was just a man. I mean, wasn't he an art student in Vienna at one time?
6: Well, it's a, it's a big question. We can talk for great length. But I will say there were less qualities in Hitler the man that led him to power than the fact that the, the whole country was reduced to his level. And what I mean by that is that he could not have flourished. He could not have come to power without the destructive effect of World War One. And, and I say in the book that I've written that, you know, had it not been for World War I, he would have gone through life as, you know, sort of daubing or coloring in little postcards and raging against those he despised and probably joining some sort of, you know, far right movement, but not really amounting to much. But because the nation had been utterly humiliated, utterly destroyed, you have to understand we're dealing with a country that was facing hyper inflation of in the billions of percent you know people lost their their life savings their houses were were worth the price of a potato and not only that i mean every family was touched by the war they'd lost a brother a son a husband and so he was a man who was pledging vengeance especially after the treaty of versailles that's what really animated hitler in those days and throughout his life was a sense of burning vengeance against people he blamed for the destruction of germany his beloved germany which he believed should always be united with Austria, you know, the pan-German supremacy over Europe. And so the seeds of this character, as you refer to it, the seeds were really sown during World War One and afterwards. But we saw be- before that a sort of lurking hatred for something or someone in society. Now, in Vienna, He, you know, he lived in extremely dire straits. He was impoverished for several years. He lived not nearly as badly as he later sort of projected it in Mein Kampf, but he certainly lived, he was homeless for several months. And he came across people that, that certainly later influenced him. But there was no signs in these early years of the extreme and violent anti-Semitism that we saw after the war. In fact, to coin a phrase, some of his best friends were Jews in Vienna at the time. They were selling his yeah. postcards. He admired uh, Jewish composers. He was certainly not rejected by Jews in his efforts to get into the Vienna Academy of Arts. There were no Jews on the board, on the tribunal, that that chose the successful yes. candidate. Going
7: back to Hitler as a person, his rise—we've just explained was sort almost like a perfect storm of mm. his personality and the state of the state of the nation. I want to, to understand his personality. He managed to almost hypnotise people because no matter what. What you do, these were sober people. Yes, there was, there was hyperinflation and yes, they had just come out of the war. And yes, it's nice to find a scapegoat, but to actually create factories of murder and death and to have people standing behind him shooting on his mm. orders. What, I mean, we're looking into his personality and his call, cool, mm. sort of young Hitler. What was it about his personality that that could give rise to that?
6: Well. The book goes deeply into his childhood, his early years. And what we see as consistent in his personality throughout his life is this burning sense of vengeance that someone was to blame for his misfortunes, for his rejections. And his rejection started very early. His father rejected him. When he asked his father if he could become an artist, his father laughed and scorned him and actually said, "Art artist, you mean actual painting artist or, or someone who paints walls. He felt rejected by the death of his mother. He, he loved his mother. He sat by her bedside for weeks when she was bedridden with breast cancer. Her death, he took as a form of rejection. He was rejected by a... A young jewish girl when he was a teenager he felt he was rejected by her i mean she didn't even realize that he had fallen in love with her her name was stephanie isaac he set eyes on her and convinced himself he was in love with her for four years he even sent her a postcard from vienna which she didn't even know you know who had sent it so there were a whole series of rejections in his young life which he was always scouting around for someone to lay the blame on, even when he didn't win the lottery. He, he entered the lottery as a 16-year-old hoping to raise money to, to build a vast mansion on the Danube. And when his numbers didn't come up, he blamed the lottery organisers and everyone involved.
7: So from his background, what do we know about Hitler's psychological state?
6: There's been a lot of studies of Hitler's psychology and no case of medical abnormality has stood stood up to scrutiny. According to an exhaustive study in 2012, he was not bipolar. He was not schizophrenic. He was not paranoid in the medical sense of the word. In fact, they conclude that he was medically normal. But so what we need to look at is the traits in his character, which one can define as, in a a, very large inverted commas, normal in other tyrants, in other dictators. And what we do see is a consistent psychological personality type, and that is a paranoid about their enemies, scapegoating their enemies to, to an extreme degree, lo- loading up that scapegoated minority with all the evils and the ills of society, a burning sense of injustice and vengeance against those they believe has, have wronged them. And these character traits were, in Hitler, you know from, from a very early age he was the class bully at school he had no friends he he sat at the back of the his classroom drawing pictures of his teachers masturbating in one example he used his school his last school report when he was 16 to as toilet paper i mean you know these were the traits yeah. of of the, the school bully and at a point in his life when he may with a firm hand perhaps have had a, I suppose a chance to sort of pursue a course in life that might have given him some some sort of stability he lost his father who died when he was 16 and then he lost his beloved mother so he was cast into the world as an orphan at the age of of about 18 and left his hometown of Linz and went to Vienna and became a sort of tramp deeply impoverished and that of course was another major rejection from the art academy and then from society itself
7: right did you find when you were doing your research, there was something that we could learn for maybe certain big personalities in today's political landscape that mm. could take us into another, another dimension, maybe war, maybe any, any number of other things? Do you think there was something that we could learn?
6: Oh, look, could definitely. Gem- I mean, this is a textbook case in prevention of another Hitler Happening again. You, we need to look into his life to see how we can prevent such a disaster, such sort a of tragedy for the world, and the way we need to prevent it. I mean, Hitler was not unusual in the sense that dictators throughout history are always blaming minorities, scapegoating people. They're defined by what they despise. And so, to prevent that happening, we just have to look at the circumstances in which a, a murderous, genocidal dictator comes to life. And that is in situations where the economy is utterly destroyed, where a nation is reduced to sort of the status of a beggar, where people are utterly distraught. And that gives rise to fanatics. And we see that so easily happening again in the, in the world in which we live now, where we see the rise of neo-Nazism. I don't... Bundle up the far right populist movements when I say that, because they are, st- at the least, as things stand, operating within the democratic system. However, their creed, their policies, such as they are, are really another form of racial nationalism defined by what they despise. They dislike right. people who don't think or look like as they do, and so what we're seeing is, is perhaps a seedbed of of new fanatics and new racists who dignified their ideas by presenting them on a sort of political platform. But they, they as the book in its last chapter points out, th- this is the breeding ground of new dictators, of new murderous psychopaths who could well emerge if the world was to collapse in so complete a way as it did after World War I.
0: Paul Ham, author of Young Hitler, the book which looks at the dictator's early years and how it shaped him into the individual he became. Speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there. If you would like more information, then do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, still to come on this edition will be our Schmooze. Don't forget we live stream the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. You can go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views in order to see it and ultimately to join in the discussion as it unfolds. And when you do comment along, we will try and read out some of those comments. Plus, you can always tell us what you think about any of the subjects we're talking about on this show. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, and you can find us on Twitter at jewishviewsuk. Now, Sunday the 12th of November 2017, or Remembrance Sunday, has long been recognised by many different communities of all walks of life, but in particular, Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein has been exploring just what it does mean to the Jewish community and whether or not the day itself is more relevant than ever before. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein to find out more about this. And Diana started by asking him to tell us why he started looking into this in the first place.
8: Well, it's something I think that has grown with me over the years you know, I was never in the army. My father was in the army, but never left the shores, and as they used to say, had an easy war. And many years ago, probably 25, 30 years ago, the local church approached me and said, would I join them in the annual Memorial Day service at the local cenotaph? And I said yes, and uh, over the years i suddenly realized what am i doing standing here and the realization has grown over the years and it's a very important became a very important part of my rabbinic life not just from the jewish point of view but i think also from the general point of view of being uh, living in in northwood in, in middlesex
9: yes indeed because you actually give the hebrew
8: blessing don't you at That's the end right. of the service at the end of the service, it was interesting, you know, at first I, I stood there by the clergy, occasionally would be asked to read a short reading, but then suggested maybe at the end I should give the blessing in Hebrew, and that's continued to this day, and, and hopefully is, 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 is very effective. Of course, I retired eight years ago, and my son now does the, the honors, although in town I always turn up and find it very moving.
9: Can I just ask you? Am I right in thinking that the Ajax Parade is takes place one week after Remembrance Sunday?
8: That is correct. And for the last thirty years or more, we've had on the on the Friday evening a special service at the synagogue that used to bring in people from all over the district, Pinner, Ryslip, Northwood, and originally we had, I suppose, twenty or or 30 ex-servicemen and women, many of them with their medals, and it was a very impressive service. As you can imagine, over the years, the numbers have got fewer and fewer, and I think that in the last year we've lost at least two members who would always turn up, one of the person with a very impressive row of medals from fighting all over Europe and in North Africa. But these are happening, and we we, we have a service service, still on Friday, the 17th of November, which I'll be leading. And we have, um, as a guest of honour, Ron Shelley, who's the vice president of, of Ajax.
9: Do you know, actually, what march on Remembrance Day in Whitehall as a group of Ajax people? Oh,
8: oh yes, indeed. You yes, do? Um,
9: so oh that's yes. as well as the, as the commemoration that, on that Sunday?
8: On the Sunday the, on the Sunday the 19th, yes, every year, the Ajax Parade... My late father-in-law was very keen on that and would always be there. He came from Birmingham and a large contingent would come down for Birmingham, members of Ajax, to join that parade. Now, you
9: talked about declining numbers. What do you think the effect of that is on future Remembrance Day parades and commemorations? Because, of course, in, for instance, the AJR, the second generation have started to carry the banner, if I can put it like that, as the older generation of Jewish refugees die out. Would that be the same with ex-serving members of the forces?
8: Well, I have to say, to my surprise, that is happening. I thought the thing would gradually die out, but no, that's not so. And that when my father-in-law was no longer able to go to the Northwood commemoration, his grandson very proudly wore the medals and i think this year my wife will be standing there with my father-in-law's medals and i I, but i see this happening more and more on friday night there will be a, a member of the synagogue who we see very rarely but he will be there with his mother's medals this is taking off
0: rabbi dr andrew goldstein emeritus rabbi of northwood and Pinner liberal synagogue speaking to community editor diana toman there about the importance and the significance Of Remembrance Sunday to us as British Jews. And if you would like more on that, then Rabbi Goldstein has written an article for the Jewish News this week, which can be found online. So if you head to jewishviews.co.uk, we'll be sure to put a link to the full article on our website. And it really is a fascinating discussion to be had, because even if Jews didn't necessarily serve as such for this country during the First World War, possibly during the time of the Second World War they did, there is absolutely no denying that we as a community have certainly benefited since.
10: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are Chief Executive for Jewish Care, Simon Morris, and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. The subject for this edition is based on Diana's discussion with Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein just now, Remembrance Sunday. The question is, what does the day mean to us as Jews? And does Rabbi Dr. Goldstein have a point when he says it's more relevant Than ever. Let's start with you,
11: David. As a Jew, what does Remembrance Sunday mean to you? I think, Clive, it means an awful lot to me because my parents came from Germany. They were fortunate to come to this country in 1939, and I remember as a young boy wanting to, having to go first and eventually wanting to go to the Cenotaph for the Jewish Remembrance Parade, which follows a week after the National Parade, in order simply to memorise and never to forget what it was all about. And I think you're right in what you say. Perhaps today, when memories are becoming increasingly short, it's more and more important that we record the history that happened in our own generation. It's
10: not only memories that get short, of course, it's the fact that very few of the survivors of the Second World War,
11: for example, survived. Absolutely. I mean. And that is why year on year, they're less and less Jewish ex-serviceman marketing yeah. for the so very reason some that you said. Simon, what's your
12: view? No, absolutely. And I, I've been on an interesting journey on this in the sense that I remember very clearly as a student that I was sort of couldn't understand it, couldn't connect to it. It was almost a person that wore a white poppy rather than a red poppy. And I think over the years, and certainly my time here at Jewish Care, has I've realised the importance of remembering it. And, and the reality is that For me, I'm very, very aware that if it hadn't been for those brave people fighting, certainly in the Second World War, I wouldn't be here today. And I think as Jews, we in Britain today, we need to be very mindful of that. As you rightly pointed out, we're living in very turbulent times, not only in this country, but in the world. And remembering actually what can happen when elected democratic governments turn bad is not a bad thing.
13: Is the Jewish remembrance... Day Parade more important than the National Remembrance Day Parade?
12: No, I
11: I would say no. I think they run, to some extent, parallel with one another. They're different, we're recording different memories, but at the end of the day, it's one and the same under the same umbrella of remembrance and recognition of what happened so many years ago, but in our lifetime, and perhaps in our way, showing gratitude that as a result, as you've just said, Simon, we are here today.
12: I do find it interesting, though, that there are separate parades. And I know it's been questioned as to why there are separate parades.
13: Well, I, th- I think the separate parades came about because of so what happened to so many Jewish people in the Second World War. Rather than the general parade, which is about everybody that fought in both wars. I just wonder at times whether that helps us
12: as a community or actually actually in today's world actually is something that potentially is. Well it's, a... not... it's firstly
13: it's, it's an it... honour, isn't it? That that we have we are allowed to have our own parade. Yes, but at but secondly same... it separates us quite a bit yeah, from, at, from the general public. At the same time, when it happens, when Remembering Sunday
10: happens at the Cenotaph, all the religions are there it, are yes, represented. Are. The chief yeah. rabbi goes. And it makes much more sense in a way to do it that way and to have perhaps all the different religions making a prayer at, at the cenotaph
13: rather than having their own one. Well, it's just only the one. own. The other people, other religions tend not to have another one, do they? I think a there's a Jewish simple religion, explanation, perhaps. Tony, and
11: that is because of what happened. I think the Jewish Remembrance Parade is not necessarily a march for those who actually fought in the war for Great Britain against Germans. I think it's because of the Holocaust that yes. it's marking the occasion with with this major significance. I think that probably was the reason it started not long after the war with Sir Israel Brody, and you may remember Clive, um, Doctor Levy, Doctor. I think it was Isaac Levy who was a chaplain to the forces. He was instrumental in. He getting, was the man who started the whole thing. Who yes. started who started the the Jewish issue, Ajax, and came Mm. along, they've taken it, and for them, they live from one year to the other, working
13: towards this one massive day of remembrance, which is the Ajax day. Simon mentioned before, you mentioned that you may have, as a teenager, gone on to wear a white poppy, rather than a red poppy, probably they didn't have white poppies in those days, I don't know. They certainly didn't when I was a teenager, something came on later on in, in, in time. What does the white poppy mean to anybody? I'm not sure it does anymore. I mean, to me at the time, I
12: I was a, a radical student, a member of CND and things, and I, I sort of was so anti-war. And I suppose, you know, the concept of a just war was something that I was mm. one was struggling with, and it was a concept that was difficult. And I suppose over time, I've certainly come to realise that actually, for me, there is such thing as a just war. And a, as I said before, if it hadn't been for people laying down their lives, I would not be here. Me and my family would not be here today.
13: And that's what the red poppy symbolises the people that laid down their lives. It's and, not actually a fighting, and,
12: is it? And no, and I think I think that is a journey that I'd been on. And I mm. you know, and I think I think it's so important today that there is this debate and there is this discussion because I think we seem to be living in a world of extremes, and I'm more fearful, mm. maybe as I get older and I see my children grow up in a world
13: That I worry about, Clive, as our—I don't want to say oldest older (laughs) member of the uh, the team here—but as as our elder, could you tell any any views on how Remembrance Day parade has changed over the years that you remember? As far as I remember, Remembrance Day hasn't changed to that extent,
10: apart from the fact that the majority of people, a great majority of the people who appeared at those services all those years ago. Are no longer with us. But that's what is so marvellous about it, is that it is exactly
12: the same as it always was. Was there more observance? I mean, one of the things that struck me, certainly having been in Israel on... Yom HaZikaron, in, in, in Israel, when actually they sound a siren.
13: Everything stops. And everything it's stops. It's an and that's, amazing, and amazing that a, thing.
12: that is a very powerful moment. And one one almost wishes in, in, in Britain that we had a sort of an 11-minute... You know, that the same thing happened.
13: I think you that used to happen. When I was we, younger, that used it? to happen. Right. People would stop. People in offices and shops would stop.
10: Well, it still does happen. It's only a two-minute stop, but everybody... And I know people who are not watching what's going on at the Cenotaph on Sunday will suddenly stop when Big Ben, and it's going to ring again. Normally, Big Ben rings. The whole country stops and nobody thinks or does anything other than think about
11: the past Mm. and the two world wars. And that's where the poppy comes in. Uh, You know, I've not necessarily been a great poppy wearer, but I do believe in the in the reason of the poppy, and it's become a huge significance in football. There's a, there's a massive debate whether they should have poppies on their sleeve or poppies on their shirt. Now, last year, England they made a massive significance of, over it, and were actually fined by FIFA mm. for breaking regulations by wearing the poppy. I I've been
10: asked this year. I don't. It's the first time I've ever been asked. But I've been asked if I would give a red poppy to put into the ground at Westminster,
11: and I have done, wow. and I thought, why not? You now, the poppy is a great significance. If someone will come to me and say, "Would well, you want to buy a poppy? I think you have to buy them, or put some money in a box. I wouldn't dare say no, because it still has this hole, this magnetism, purely to remind us of what was, and if you watch probably next Saturday night on TV from the Royal Albert Hall, when they've got the memorial concert, it will finish with thousands of poppies falling from falling the roof down yes falling. Out, out of
13: interest david when they come along with the tin and ask you do, do you buy out of embarrassment or do you buy because you want to buy it not at all embarrassment i buy it because i'm I'm, I'm glad i mean i think i
12: think it's interesting how how, how the hmm. poppy has grown in significance because again <laughs> all the football teams last over the weekend played had shirts hmm. with poppies on it yeah and again that did not happen when I was growing up. No, And, and that was
13: both teams.
12: Both teams, all, te- yeah. all all the teams, both certainly teams in the premiership. I don't know whether that happened outside. I think one's got to be careful that it doesn't become just... that. We keep reminding ourselves of the significance of what it's about rather than just a badge that one wears because everyone else is wearing yeah. it. I think that's yeah. very important that's when you important. say the
10: significance because there's something very important for us as Jews. For us to remember all those millions of Jews, that, well, there were 10 million people, 4 million of whom were not Jewish, mm. but of the 6 million Jews who were killed by the Nazis,
12: this is surely a time to remember well, and I, to, I, to remind other people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have days in this country and, it, you know, there's Holocaust Memorial Day and there's Yom HaZikaron from Israel, but uh, but uh, Yom HaShoah in Israel. But I think for me, it's the fact that ordinary british people and people from the commonwealth gave their lives to defend britain and the freedoms that we had against nazi germany and that to me is the fact that british people and commonwealth people stood up against tyranny racism and the what it stands for that may may be
11: correct that probably is very accurate to do with the national remembrance but i still believe that the Jewish one, the week after, has more to do with the Holocaust oh, than people who are marching with the medals and the bowler hats yes. and everything yeah. that goes with it because at the end of the day, nothing impacts more. So, so we happened. shouldn't
13: incorporate it into the national
11: one. Most, in keep my it opinion, as a, definitely I not. Said, but a...
13: how many
10: people actually take in the Jewish one? Are there, And I'm talking about Jews. How many Jews actually are aware of the fact
13: that the week after the we week at the Cenotaph, there's a Jewish version of it. Well, most Jews of, of my age, I don't know about getting younger, but most Jews of a certain age do take, well, we'd know it's there. Well, we know will it you happens. be at the Cenotaph that I won't be Sunday? at the Cenotaph. Were you there last year? No, no I've never been to the Cenotaph
10: mm. on Remembrance Day. Have you not? No. It is one of the most moving occasions, both of them. I've been to both. And both the Jewish one and the big one, the week before, are absolutely so moving and so
13: amazing. But it doesn't mean um, to say that because I'm not there, I'm not aware that it's no. going on at that day at that time. But, it, oh, yes. but it's so, a
11: recognition. And if you now go forward into January, when they've got Holocaust Memorial Day, there's been a shift of emphasis in that it's not any more necessarily purely Jewish and nothing else. They now want to talk about Rwanda mm. and the massacres on the, the Viet Cong or wherever the fields, of the, the death-killing
13: fields were. Un- Unfortunately, since the Second World War and the Holocaust that we talk about, the world has learned nothing from it, and it continues to, to go on. In fact, the world, the, I mean, this is a different subject, but at the moment, the world is in the most appalling mm-hmm. state. And it's quite frightening. Should we be concerned that once there are no survivors left, that Remembrance Sunday, the Jewish Remembrance Sunday, will start to fizzle out? In answer to that, why do we still keep Tisha above Tony?
2: <laughs> well, yeah. That's
8: a very, that's a very good question. On which
10: to end this discussion, because <laughs>
11: unfortunately
10: our time is up. My thanks to our guests, Chief Executive for Jewish Care Simon Morris, and Founder of West End Travel David Siegel. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to Facebook dot com slash the jewish views or on twitter we are at jewish views uk and it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from rabbi
14: amanda Golby from new north london Masorti synagogue judaism is a religion of time yes place matters we care about our synagogues we care about israel we've been marking the centenary of the balfour declaration In this week's portion, Haye Sarah, Abraham, even though the land has been promised to him, buys the cave of Machpelah, first to bury Sarah at the start of the portion, and at the end he is buried there. In time, it is the burial place for our traditional patriarchs and matriarchs, except Rachel. We all have special places of Jewish and personal importance. But time has an even greater significance. Shabbat each week, our festival calendar, and new days such as Yom HaShoah, Yom HaTzma'ut, and even newer, Mitzvah Day coming up, Shabbat UK a couple of weeks ago, and for us as Jews and as British citizens, Remembrance Day is important. But while we have many special days in the Jewish calendar, in the secular calendar, and in our personal lives, we have far more which are so-called ordinary and they also have significance. Haye Sarah means the life of Sarah, yet begins with her death. Haye Sheva Haye The English is something like Sarah's lifetime, the span of Sarah's life came to hundred and twenty-seven years. Sarah died but a literal translation, and this was the life of Sarah, 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, the years of the life of Sarah. And given that we are told no word of Torah is superfluous, there is much discussion on the repetition of the word years. One Midrash tells us that Sarah retained the innocence of a 7-year-old when she was 20 and the beauty of a 20-year-old when she was 100. Alternatively, her age is the ideal 120, with the addition of the sacred number 7, there are other interpretations also. We wish mourners long life, though its thought to have originated with the phrase, may you have long days. When we talk about having a long day, we usually mean a difficult, tiring one. But the ideal long day is one which we have really lived in the best way possible. We do not choose how many years we live, but in most circumstances we can choose how we use our time, Our days, our years, and try to do it in the most meaningful way possible, as we read in Psalm 90. So teach us how to spend our days and acquire a heart of wisdom. It's really interesting listening to Rabbi Golby there, just talking about
0: the relevance of time and how we spend it and what we ultimately do with it, trying to achieve to become better individuals. And I think sometimes it's all too easy to forget that. So thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Masorti Synagogue with our thoughts for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for, would you believe? Thank you very much indeed to our guests. Journalist Jenny Fraser telling us about the resignation of MP Pretty Patel. Thank you also goes to Paul Hamm telling us about his new book, Young Hitler, to Rabbi Dr. Andrew Goldstein telling us about the importance of Remembrance Sunday. Thank you to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg, Sue Greenberg, and Harley Baptist. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.